This is Revolution at Sea with John Curtis Perry. Episode 2, Early China and the Sea. China was the leading candidate for global oceanic pioneer. It was the world's richest and most advanced civilization during the span of five centuries or so from 1000 to 1500 of the Christian era. It boasted an unbroken continuity of cultural tradition. China's command of practical science and China's statecraft were of extraordinary accomplishment. Why, then, did China not seize the lead and open the world ocean? The Chinese regarded their culture as superior to all others in a material and aesthetic sense. They also believed it to be morally superior. They were convinced that China possesses a universally valid system of beliefs that were universally applicable and to which everyone ought to subscribe. China, therefore, held a special place in the world as guardian of these values, and it was the obligation of China to live up to them as a moral exemplar. These values could not be imposed upon other people, but others should be encouraged to accept them, the Chinese believed. They were despised if they did not take advantage of the opportunity. The Chinese believed it was up to the outsider to take the initiative. These cultural attitudes develop along with the realities of Chinese history. The Chinese interacted with the outside world, largely through the nomads on a long land frontier. This was therefore a continental, not a maritime, connectivity. Nomadic peoples operated across a more than 4,000-mile-long Eurasian corridor, living in a vast grassy steppe walled in north by the great Siberian boreal forest and in the south intermittently flanked by desert and by sedentary agrarian civilizations. The Chinese dialogue with the nomads was dynamic. Mobile on their hardy ponies, Nomads often appeared, sweeping in like typhoons and then disappearing like flashes of lightning, their advent and their present, fluid, even frenzied. They were part of an age-old contest between steppe versus sown, the pastoral versus the agricultural, the man on horseback, versus the land-bound peasant. The interaction was a constant in Eurasian history. Ibn Khaldun, the great peripatetic Muslim historian, writing in 1377, 
saw this counterpoint of nomad and settler to be the prime motive force of history. He saw it as a struggle between the civilized and the savage. The Chinese, if they had known of him, would have heartily agreed on that contrast. Drifting westward and southward, Eurasian nomads ricocheted like billiard balls hitting against the core civilizations. British geographer Sir Halford Mackinder would define it as the great Asiatic hammer striking through the open spaces of the steppes. The power of that hammer would last until the development of gunpowder weapons and the opening of global oceanic trade routes. In China, these barbarians, as the Chinese saw them, conquered and fused with the Chinese imperial order, working within it to achieve their own aims. The Chinese accepted them as long as they accommodated to the norms of Chinese culture. The fusion was eased because the racial difference was insignificant, and the barbarians were often eager to adapt themselves to Chinese culture. They were free to do so if they wished. Such was the Chinese expectation and often the reality. This great and protracted dialogue forms a major force in Chinese history. The struggle soaked up military resources and provided a primary focus of attention. It conditioned Chinese attitudes towards the outside world, and this would carry immense consequence for modern China. China chose to put its collective political energies into its continental margins, ultimately creating the China that we know today, the world's last great land empire, now today freshly awakened to the potential of the sea. A major early center of Chinese civilization arose in the north in the valley around the bend of the Great Yellow River. But expansion to the south became a major feature of Chinese historical geography. With the north retaining political authority, the south emerging as an economic dynamo. The indented southern coastline offering many harbors and the hard scrabble land along the coast encouraged people to take to the sea. Fishing, trade, and piracy flourished, and many Chinese began to use the sea as avenue to a better life. The movement of Chinese people to Southeast Asia and ultimately beyond would become one of the greatest diasporas in world history. Centering in the South, the Chinese developed a vigorous maritime tradition, although it lay beyond government control and primarily in private hands. Officials at the capital hunched over their documents, grinding their ink and putting brush to paper, 
saw the sea as a problem because of its vexatious pirates, rather than as an opportunity for trade and resources. The notable exception to governmental indifference, if not hostility to the sea, was the spectacular episode in the early 1400s of seven officially sponsored voyages into waters remote from China and new to the Chinese. These great ships crossed the Indian Ocean, sailing south to Zanzibar, north to Ormuz, and west to Jiddah on the Red Sea. The eunuch, grand director of the enterprise, Zheng He, presented his objectives as diplomatic, with his fleets as symbols of moral power, instruments not of force, but merely of persuasion. Yet this was the ideal, not the reality. Beneath soft words and silken panoply of glistening banners and richly embroidered robes, these ships, armed with gunpowder weapons, formed what we would today call an oceanic strike force, an instrument capable of compelling or conquering. As many as 28,000 people sailed with the fleet, most of them soldiers, more than what would soon be the standing army of France. We are uncertain what his ships looked like, but they represent a naval technology unequaled anywhere in the world at the time. The classic seagoing junk represents the type. It could be as much as uh, 3,000 tons, equipped with compass, sternpost rudder, watertight compartments kept dry by pedal-powered bilge pumps and multiple masts. These vessels were the culmination of a long evolutionary process and contained devices that others would borrow and ultimately capitalize upon. Today, the Chinese interpret Zheng as a symbol of a Chinese attachment to peaceful diplomacy. But Zheng did not hesitate to use force. He kidnapped the monarch of Sri Lanka and carried him back to China. This was gunboat diplomacy long before that term would be used. But he did not try to make political use of the overseas Chinese he encountered on his voyages. And he made no attempt to build an oceanic empire, as did the Europeans who would follow in the same waters a century later. But the voyages ultimately proved to be mere foam, spindrift, without consequence. Stopped abruptly, the great ships were allowed to rot along shore, with most of the record destroyed by disapproving official historians, and they were virtually forgotten. But waves of seaborne life would flourish after 
the government pulled out. And these bore a stream of emigrants and a flow of trade within Asian Pacific waters, all within private hands. This was a regional, not global, phenomenon. Thalassic, not pelagic. Whereas Zheng He, despite his remarkable voyages, did not change history, European seafarers soon to follow would. Join us next time as we set sail to explore another possible candidate for oceanic leadership. In Episode 3, The Indian Ocean. Revolution at Sea is written and spoken by John Curtis Perry, with additional voicing by Jamie Rosenberg. Production by 1623 Studios, Gloucester, Massachusetts. Post-production and distribution by Albert Buishade-Ferre. Goodbye until next time. <laughs>